0: This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and guests about politics. It's Friday, July 19th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. Tensions between Iran and the United States have been escalating since the spring, and they rose further still this week. There have been Iranian attacks on six foreign tankers in the Gulf of Oman, and on June 20th, Iran shot down a US drone with a surface-to-air missile. Trump came very close to ordering a retaliatory strike, calling it off only moments before it occurred, citing the possible loss of life of dozens of Iranians. Yesterday afternoon, President Trump announced that the U.S. Navy had shot down an Iranian drone in the Strait of Hormuz after it flew too close to the USS Boxer, an amphibious assault vessel. This is the latest of many provocative and hostile actions by Iran against vessels operating In international waters. The United States reserves the right to defend our personnel, our facilities, and interests, and calls upon all nations to condemn Iran's attempts to disrupt freedom of navigation and global commerce. Robin Wright, a New Yorker contributing writer, joins me to discuss how Iran views its decades-long conflict with the United States and whether a new diplomatic solution might be possible. Robin, welcome back. Always great to be with you, Dorothy. Tell us why Iran is testing the limits of the 2015 nuclear deal just now, which the US abandoned more than a year ago.
1: Iran honored the terms of the deal 14 months after President Trump walked away from it in May last year. When the United States reimposed sanctions in November, Iran began to feel the economic squeeze. And as of May, the United States imposed sanctions on any country or any company that dared to deal with Iran, dared to buy its oil. And Iran's position was if it can't sell its oil, then Others shouldn't have the right to do so either, that others would pay a price. And so we've begun to see the building tensions that have played out, as you noted, in various attacks on foreign tankers in the Gulf, uh, Iran's decision to increase the level of enrichment of uranium, a fuel that can be used both for peaceful nuclear energy and to build a bomb, although they're not anywhere close to to that level yet, uh, and to shoot down a, a U.S. drone. So we've seen a number of escalations that reflect the, a longstanding pattern that has played out between the two countries, but brought to a head by the split over the nuclear deal.
0: So. You've been covering Iran for decades, going all the way back to the original hostage crisis, which started in 1979 when a group of Iranian students who supported the revolution took over the U.S. embassy in Tehran. That was the start of hostage-taking in the region, as I understand it. I was very interested in a piece that I read this morning that is being published today on NewYork.com by you. You write about an incident in 1982, which led to the taking of the first American hostage in Beirut. What happened and what does it tell us about the current stalemate?
1: Well, Iran has always adopted an eye-for-an-eye eye strategy in dealing with countries or groups that it believes are our adversaries. And what happened is that in 1982, four Iranians who were driving in a diplomatic car uh, back from a trip to Damascus, to their base at the Iranian embassy in Beirut, were stopped at a checkpoint by a right-wing Christian militia. They disappeared and they have never been seen since. Well, the Iranians demanded that the international community do something Uh, These were, after all, diplomats who had immunity, should never have been stopped at a checkpoint, should have had free passage, and the world did nothing. So later the same month, Gunman abducted the president of American University in Beirut, uh, a well-known American academic, and he disappeared for the next year into a prison in Iran. Now, that sequence continued, even though David Dodge, the president of the university, was freed after Syrian intervention, partly to curry favor with the United States. But the trend continued because the four Iranians never showed up. And it became a talking point between Washington and Tehran. Iran offered to help free the Americans as they were taken hostage in Beirut, if the Americans would help With the Christian militia in Lebanon in winning the freedom for the four Iranians. Now, the the Bush administration, a decade later, did look into what happened to them. President Bush said he thought that was an important issue and that that might help end the hostage-taking of Americans in Beirut. The Americans informed the Iranians that the four diplomats had been executed. But the Iranians have never received the bodies, and they have ever since On July 4th, the anniversary of that abduction, commemorated the disappearance and made an appeal to the international community, still as recently as this month, asking for help in winning their release. It's been a sore point that has played out on a lot of other fronts as well.
0: So they are utterly consistent in their approach to war. We saw this in the Tanker War of 1984 with Iraqi President Saddam Hussein. We saw it after the US intervention in Afghanistan, after 9-11, the US invasion of Iraq in 2003. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, there's always a pattern. For example, with the Tanker War, during the eight-year war between Iraq and Iran, Iraq started attacking Iran's tankers and the major oil terminus at Karg Island. Iran didn't do anything for a few months, but then it decided to respond and it began hitting tankers ferrying Iraqi oil. So you got into a real tanker war in the one of the most strategic waterways in the world that endangered global energy supplies. And over the next three years, Iraq hit Almost 300 tankers doing business with Iran, and Iran responded by hitting almost 170 tankers doing business with Iraq. Uh, It became a major issue that actually sucked the United States Navy into the crisis because the U.S. wanted to ensure the passage of oil free passage of global energy supplies. And the U.S. began escorting tankers doing business with Iraq. And we actually ended up uh, losing one of our own ships. And when Iraq, by mistake, hit it, thinking it was doing business with Iran. So that was that one episode. Iran always responds. It responds proportionately, not as much as the adversary, but always to make sure that it sends the message, don't mess with Iran. We saw it the same way with the War of the Cities, uh, again, at the end of the Iran-Iraq War, when Saddam Hussein found that the Iranians fought a lot harder and longer than he anticipated, he decided to start, Firing missiles on civilian areas, major Iranian cities like Tehran and Isfahan and Shiraz and Tabriz. And over the course of the next few years, Iraq fired over 500 missiles on cities and major metropolises had sandbags piled in front of every business, every apartment building, um, many homes, windows were crisscrossed. I covered that war, and I remember how civilians a long way from the front line felt very vulnerable. But Iran also responded then, too, and it fired uh, more than 110 missiles back on Iraqi cities, including Baghdad and Basra. Every time there's a provocation, or every time Iran feels like it's been attacked, It strikes back, and that's a lesson that's played out, as you pointed out, played out in Afghanistan after the U.S. intervention there and again after the U.S. intervened in Iraq. As Iran felt threatened with the U.S. Army on both its eastern and western borders, it started going after American troops, providing insurgents in both countries the kind of equipment that they could uh, put explosive devices along roadsides and kill Americans to up the ante to try to raise the cost of— America's uh, intervention in those both countries and, and
0: get them to withdraw. So right now, I get the impression that neither side really wants to go to war. Trump actually has said repeatedly that he's not looking for regime change in Iran, only for the end to nuclear transgressions. And He actually keeps sending signals that he'd like to enter into the same kind of diplomacy he's been conducting with North Korea. But then at the same time, last month, he, as you had mentioned, he imposed new sanctions. And specifically on Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, his entire office and Revolutionary Guard commanders, what does that kind of sanctioning even mean and how seriously does Iran take that?
1: Well, the Trump administration has a strategy called maximum pressure, and it has on a regular basis imposed, whether it's new sanctions or kind of imaginative restrictions. It's the first time that a head of state any place has ever been sanctioned. It's the first time that the entire military of a country, we didn't even do that with the Nazi army or Saddam Hussein's army. Uh, The Revolutionary Guards were completely sanctioned from the top general to the the bottom foot soldier. And this is an attempt to try to squeeze Iran back to the negotiating table. President Trump believes that he wants a much bigger deal than President Obama engaged in. He wants to deal not just with the nuclear question, but all the other issues that are out there, whether it's Iran's missile tests or it's meddling in the Middle East, it's support for extremist groups and it's chronic human rights abuses. He wants to get all of this done in one sweeping deal. But what's really striking is that, at the same time, he does make these, as you pointed out, these overtures, saying, oh, he'd be happy to talk to the supreme leader. And uh, last fall, when President Rouhani was at the U.N. for the General Assembly opening, he even said Rouhani was probably a wonderful guy and be happy to meet him. So you get these mixed signals. I'm not sure that President Trump has the total support of his closest foreign policy advisors, notably John Bolton, the national security advisor. But he seems to feel that that formula he established with Kim Jong-un in North Korea is what will work.
0: This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus.
1: You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus. But somehow, that's, that's where we
0: are. Susan Glasser. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday, you sat down for an interview with Iran's foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, who was the country's main broker of the nuclear deal. What did he have to say? Well, he made a
1: kind of overture about offering the outlines of how the two countries might be able to resolve their differences. It was an interesting idea. He didn't flesh it out very much. But he said that Iran would be willing to sign a document, what's called the Additional Protocol. It's a document sponsored by the International Atomic Energy Agency that ensures and the commits a country never to develop a nuclear weapon. And in exchange for that, Iran wants the United States to lift sanctions. What it does, very cleverly, is get around the issue of President Trump going back and accepting the nuclear deal that President Obama had negotiated. So it it solves some of the key issues on the nuclear deal, including the sunset clauses that at various phases over... 10, 15, 20, and 25 years, lists some of the restrictions on Iran's nuclear program. It does not, however, deal with all those other issues that the Trump administration wants addressed as well. You know, it's very interesting. The Politico had a story that the president had allowed Rand Paul to reach out to the Iranians. And Zarif mentioned, confirmed, that he had seen members from the Hill. He did not specify Uh, either Rand Paul or anyone else, but he is American educated and regularly meets with uh, members of the Senate or the House, current and former. So you see that there's still an appetite that in the midst of all this rhetoric and the escalation, hitting drones, tanker attacks and so forth, that there still seems to be an appetite to see if they can figure a way out of this terrible crisis
0: that has very come very close to starting A war, yet another war in the Middle East. He also mentioned, didn't he, to a small group of journalists that he sort of praised Trump and saying, you know, we are a few minutes away from a war prudence prevailed and we're not fighting. Now that was before the destruction of the drone yesterday.
1: It was, but it was very striking language and it's interesting that even as we see angry rhetoric from both countries on a regular basis that there is still this interest in looking for ways out of it. I think there may be some momentum as we approach the opening of the U.N. General Assembly in September. That's a time that the Iranian president has historically come to New York. And over the last two years, the Trump administration has repeatedly reached out to the Iranians to hold a meeting. The problem is, at the same time, President Trump takes the U.N. stage and blasts Iran as a rogue regime and a violator of international norms and calls on the world to side with the United States on this. And uh, President Rouhani, coming from a very divided government in Tehran, has never felt that the, that he could afford to do that. So one of the problems is even if both sides are interested, can they find the right moment, the right dynamics to get together? And the danger, of course, is if they don't, what does happen? I mean, how much worse can this get? And it can get a lot worse.
0: Thank you so much, Robin. I'll have you come back in September. Great,
1: Dorothy, great to be with you.
0: Robin Wright is a contributing writer at The New Yorker and the author of several books about the Middle East, including The Last Great Revolution, Turmoil, and Transformation in Iran. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program is produced by Jill Dubuff for NewYorker.com with assistance from Kylie Warner. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.